welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon in Casablanca, Morocco, where we're going for the first time, to Celeste Hicks, who is a former BBC correspondent and now a freelance journalist who's reported extensively on the African oil trade, as well as general reporting in the Sahel region. And for those of you not familiar with the Sahel, that's the kind of band in North Africa that includes Niger, Chad, Nigeria, Mali, and Sudan. She's also the author of a new book that came out in April, Africa's New Oil, Power, Pipelines, and Future Fortunes. Uh, Celeste, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the oil industry, particularly as it relates to the Chinese uh, in that band of Africa that you have been covering for so many years. I'd like to, before we get into too much detail, kind of get the big picture from you about the oil companies operating in that part of the world. It's a highly volatile, incredibly corrupt, and now facing the ever-present threat of Islamic extremism. Uh, Traditionally, the oil majors from the West have been very big players there, but now the Chinese seem to be coming in. What is, give us just an overview of the situation and who the major players are in the oil space in that Sahel region. Uh, I reported mostly from Chad, uh, from the BBC from 2008 to 2010. Um, And in Chad, the oil industry has been dominated since 2003 by a consortium of companies. Uh, There were three companies, ExxonMobil, Petronas and Chevron, who operated uh, the Dover oil field in the south of Chad. Um, Those oil fields were opened up uh, partly through uh, World Bank financing in in the early 2000s, and that helped contribute to the construction of an export pipeline which went to the Cameroonian coast. Um, And and from that time until around 2008, they were the only players in the Chadian oil industry. Uh, And then in 2007, 2008, uh, the CMPC arrived on the scene and started to negotiate some contracts for the oil in another area of Chad called the Bongo Basin. Um, and then the, the Chinese won the rights to those contracts and they built a, a refinery complex uh, and also a, an extraction site for the oil in the, in the Bongo Basin, which opened in 2011. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of interest in Chad's oil um, and some other country, uh, other oil companies have come in, uh, including Glencore um, and the, Chi- the Canadian company uh, Caracal also had some, some oil concessions in the south. Uh, there's also quite a lot of speculation on oil blocks in Chad, um, which are often owned by Nigerian oil companies. Uh, and a lot of them, they don't actually do any exploration or uh, production. They just buy up the oil blocks uh, and then sell them again when when the price goes up for them. Uh, I also reported from Niger. I know you've spoken about Niger in your last podcast. Um, And there it really is the CNPC dominates the the oil industry in Niger, although there are a couple of smaller companies, uh, including Savannah Petroleum, which is a British oil company, uh, which are doing some prospecting for oil in the Agadem Basin. So, you know, I, I think a, a very crude stereotype of, of foreign, in, you know, um, involvement in, in West African oil um, is the Nigerian case. You know, kind of that, that you know, that they got a lot of press in the 1990s, i.e. lots of exploitation, lots of corruption, lots of pollution. Um, is, 
is that still realistic in terms of, of how the oil industry looks there? And is China, to the Chinese involvement, is it changing anything or is it essentially like perpetuating status quo? Chad is a really interesting example of um, a project which doesn't really follow those contours that, that, as you say, that kind of established narrative of the uh, oil production in West Africa. Uh, the, the reasons are complex, but basically when Chad became an oil producer in 2003, the World Bank helped to finance the construction of the Chad oil fields. And as part of that, the World Bank made its loans contingent on a, a series of uh, steps uh, to mitigate against the dangers of the oil industry. So there was a very complicated environmental management plan. Uh, things like social rights and workers' rights uh, were included in, in the contract which was drawn up uh, for the opening of this oil field in southern Chad. So actually in Chad, it's very interesting because a lot of those laws that were built at the beginning of the oil production in 2003 also apply to the oil industry in the, uh, the, the fields which are owned by the, the CNPC. Um, so although I'm, I wouldn't for a second argue that the, the CNPC or even ESSO are operating these oil fields in a completely impact-free manner in southern Chad, I actually found when I visited the this oil fields of southern Chad, both the, the CNPC fields and uh, the ESSO the fields, there's remarkably little damage and environmental problems that you would associate with, for example, the Niger Delta. Um, there's also uh, quite a lot of Chadians that are employed in the industry who have jobs, who have seen their skills improved by working through working for the oil companies in southern Chad. And you also see a moderate amount of development in the towns around the oil fields, such as Dover. Um, again, I don't want to overstate that and suggest that there's been some kind of radical transformation because there hasn't. But actually, the, the picture that lots of people associated with African oil, in the case of Nigeria, I, I certainly didn't see uh, that scenario happening in the in southern chad but that's very perplexing to hear from you and and again i don't know what's what but back in 2013 the headlines were filled with the record fines that the chadian government was imposing on cnpc for uh environmental transgressions in fact they revoked a number of exploration licenses and they issued if i'm correct almost two billion dollars in fines uh, allegedly for environmental violations. What What's going on here in terms of what you're seeing on the ground and what I've heard from other scholars as well and the politics of, of CNPC and the Chadian government? It's a very complicated question. Um, as I said, I, I don't want to suggest at all that the, the CNPC project is not without problems because it is. Um, what I saw was when I, I visited the, the oil fields, the CNPC oil fields in July 2013 for the research for my book, um, I didn't see any major problems on the environmental side when I was traveling around. And, and I went for a, a fairly extensive tour of the sites and I saw lots of, uh, you know, workers wearing protective gear and hard hats. I saw lots of new equipment. Um, I saw a little garden where they were growing their own vegetables. The, on, on the positive side, there, there was a lot to see that the Chinese were making an effort, at least to show me as a journalist, that, that, that they were protecting the environment. 
However, I can't say that I saw all of the areas of the CMP project, and I'm sure that there were sites where there were environmental problems. And as you say, yes, it was true that um, in August 2013, so one month after I visited, uh, the Chadian authorities uncovered a, a very serious case of pollution. Um, they claimed at the time that oil was being kept in pits that which weren't covered properly and that this oil was leaking into the ground around uh, the, the CMPC site um, and that there was a danger that people could have either fallen into the pits or that some of the dangerous chemicals associated with crude, unprocessed crude oil would be getting into the local air. Um, and the Chadians as you said, were, were so upset and angry about this that they immediately closed down the CMPC's production um, and their exploration. And the resulting row went on for around a year uh, with the, basically Chad claiming that the CMPC were not following its strict environmental rules and did result in this enormous fine. Um, what I would say as well is that the, the CMPC at least... Uh, to, to a certain extent, seemed to be keen to show that they were trying to clean up the project. And they, when I was in touch with them after this happened, after the, the Chadian government tried to close down the project, um, they issued a number of statements saying that they were immediately going to be clearing up uh, the site where they'd caused all, all the damage. Um, from an independent point of view, the only ever ev other evidence I have to back up whether the Chad side of the story was true or the CNPC side of the story was true was a, a study which was done by the École de Mines in Paris, uh, which was based on satellite image imagery, which um, they used uh, looking at the areas around the CMPC oil sites. And they did find um, some areas where there was clear evidence that the oil had seeped into the subsoil around the sites, which, which they'd picked up from looking at the satellite images. Um, but apart from that, um, I remember you would had a, an interesting discussion in your podcast uh, with the author of the report in Niger. Um, it is very difficult to get either the Chadian government or the, or the CMPC to comment on these issues. So to a certain extent, it's hard to know who's really telling the truth. Um, I wonder if you could, you know, t take a kind of a bird's eye view. Um, and do you do you have an, um, uh, you know, is, uh, what kind of idea do you have about how Chinese involvement and also the growth of Chinese as a as a big market for for West African oil, how that changed the dynamic that um, that the Sahel region has had with with all of the, the other oil companies, all of the Western oil companies involved in there, you know, kind of in, in, in the areas. Um, did it give them more leverage to get more out of these oil companies than they could before? Sorry, you, you mean the, 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 for the Sahelian countries to get more leverage? Yes. Um, you know, kind of was it, was it possible to use China as a kind of a bargaining point in, in their negotiations with the West? Yes, I, th I think when China first arrived on the scene uh, in Chad and also in Niger, uh, there was a feeling, certainly in Chad, that this was a field day for the Chadians because suddenly they found themselves able to negotiate with whoever they wanted. And previously they'd been bound by the very strict terms of this World Bank deal and with the strict terms of Exxon and the consortium that run the Doba fields in Chad. Um, they, there was a feeling at the very beginning that the Chinese would pay almost anything and there was also a feeling that the Chinese didn't really care about strict policies on environment or 
strict policies on what kind of tax payments they would give to the Chadian government and that really the, the, the Chadians were going to get a really good deal from the Chinese. Um, certainly in terms of the, the deal that they signed at the beginning, it was much more favourable to the Chadians because they in, initially, right at the beginning of the project, got a 60-40% share. Uh, so, so the Chinese took a 60% share and the, and the Chadians took a 40% share in managing the company which set up the oil refinery in Chad. Um, and up until this point, everything that had been produced uh, from the Dober fields, which were owned by the Exxon Consortium, 100% of that oil was exported from Chad. So there was certainly a feeling at the beginning of the relationship that this was really good for Chad because suddenly Chad would have a refinery, it would have its own oil and its own fuel independence, and also the Chadians would be able to be involved in the business side and learn skills and expertise from working alongside the the, the Chinese. Um, I mean, as as things have unraveled over the last couple of years, it's it's become clear that deal was was not as positive as as it as it was initially assumed. Um, but certainly at the beginning, yes, they, they did feel that they could throw off the shackles of, of kind of, you know, the Western uh, thoughts on corporate social responsibility and environment and tax, fair tax systems and basically get whatever kind of deal they wanted. Well, let me pick up on that. Uh, Tom Burgess is a correspondent for the Financial Times, and he recently wrote a book called The, the Looting Machine, which talks about kind of the, the resource curse in Africa and how it ties into globalization. One of the main kind of points in his book is that the Chinese really are picking up where the Europeans left off. And, and there's really no substantive difference between how Europeans and Westerners engaged, exploited, took advantage of Africa. And the Chinese basically are, are just kind of em- employing the same methods and, and a similar system. Do you find that what you're seeing in the regions that you've covered, whether or not it's in oil or in other sectors, that this, in terms of the resource curse that afflicts so much of the Sahel, that the Chinese are behaving any differently, or are they doing, as Tom Burgess suggests, uh, picking up pretty much where the Europeans left off? I think that you can see there is a certain extent that the Chinese are picking up where the Europeans left off. Um, uh, certainly in the way that they... Uh, are going in after the some of the contracts that were available in places like Chad and Niger, which European companies eventually turned their noses up at. Um, I, I think my conclusions on, on the Chinese approach to Africa, to a certain extent, I, I thought the Chinese were actually fairly naive about the way they approached uh, certainly Chad and Niger. Um, and the Chadians and the Nigerians were also naive in the way they approached the Chinese, um, which is why you've seen these disagreements between Chad and Niger over the the, con- the details of these contracts and why there's been these face-offs between the Chadians and the Nigerians now about closing down the refineries. Um, a lot of the details uh, which should have been agreed at the beginning of these projects in the contracts just simply weren't agreed. So things like what would be the the sale price of the fuel produced at the refineries wasn't agreed at the beginning. Um, There were just very general deals about, uh, as I said, a 60-40% share of of the company. Um, And actually now you see that perhaps the Chinese left things too open, um, which has been a cause for disagreement. And I think probably you would have found if it had been a Western oil company going in, they, they wouldn't have left those details 
um, unclear in, in such a way. Um, I also think that the Chinese are quite inexperienced in the way that they uh, tell the world about their stories. Um, I think the Western oil companies have become very sophisticated in their media strategies and the way that they communicate their objectives and, and the positive things that they claim they've done for the African countries where they're oil producers. Whereas the CNPC really didn't seem to get that at all. It was very difficult. I wouldn't say impossible because I managed it, but it was very, very difficult to get to visit the Chinese oil fields. Even though the Chinese said privately to me, that, or several of the Chinese workers said privately to me, that they were very upset about the way the CNPC was being portrayed by the global media. They felt they were being unjustly demonized. But at the same time, they were making it almost impossible for anybody to interview them or get their vo their viewpoint on any story. So I think that the, the, the approaches in that way are, are very different to, to the Western companies. They're much less slick and, and professional in that way. Um, but however, we are sort of seeing a degree of bullying, which I think, you know, we could argue some of the old Western oil companies uh, which invested in Africa have also been guilty of that. Um and I think that you, what we're seeing in, in, in Chad and Niger currently is that kind of sense that the, the Chinese now realize they need to make their investments work uh, and, and they're not working particularly well. Um, and so they're trying to, to push now to get a better deal and, and, and clarify those terms that they didn't clarify at the beginning when they signed the contract. And do you, what kind of effect do you think the Chinese economic slowdown and restructuring is going to have on, on these oil producers? I mean, China is both a, a big lender in, in, in building these refineries and pipelines and so on, and as well as uh, has so far been a big market for their oil. Um, how do you think this is going to change the dynamic? In general, I have seen quite a lot of evidence over the last couple of months that all the oil companies or most of the oil companies that were prospecting in Africa have either slowed down the, the rates of prospection or have pulled out completely. And I certainly saw that in, in Kenya uh, since I went to do my research for the book in, in 2014. And then uh, at the end of 2014, when, when the oil price began to fall, um, several companies which I'd been looking at um, pulled out and, and stopped researching there. So I think it's, it's safe to say that all oil companies are being very cautious about investing certainly in, in, in some sort of the, of the more marginal economies in Africa uh, because of the risks associated with that. Um, on, on Specifically on the Chinese, I, I think it's difficult to say how their business plans work out in Africa. I, I started my research on, on the CNPC in Chad really with a question of I, I just couldn't understand how they, how they hoped to make any money when they didn't have any export route to market. And that was in 2008. Um, and they only started exporting very small amounts through this uh, Chad Cameroon pipeline, which is owned and operated by the Exxon Consortium. They only started their exports at, at the end of 2014. So that was um, six years that they were producing oil where they weren't exporting. And, and there's a lot being written about the economies of the economics of refineries. Um, and generally speaking, they, they don't make any money and they're not particularly profitable. The money is in export. Um, and so I, I couldn't understand how the, how the Chinese business plans were supposed to work. And, and, and the same thing is true in Niger, where there is no export pipeline at all. 
Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not as convinced that the Chinese company, oil companies, would would be inclined to slow down their exploration and production to the same extent as some of the Western oil companies, which are much more motivated by tight profit margins and the need to, to, to make money quickly because the Chinese really – and all the time I've been studying this and writing this, I, I, I can't really understand how they're, they're hoping to make money, but it, it, it doesn't seem to, to bother them too much. And, and, and then evidence of that was when I was in Chad, I, I met the director general of, of the Chadian, of the, of the CNPC in Chad, who actually has since left Chad. But at the time in 2013, he was the director and, and he shrugged his shoulders when I asked him about whether they were making a profit. And he shrugged his shoulders and laughed and said, well, we ought to make a profit sooner, otherwise I'll lose my job. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of candid response made me just think that the, the Chinese appear to be on a different kind of timescale when it comes to their investments in Africa. Well, we've spoken to a couple oil specialists about who, are, who, ex, who focus on the Chinese, and we've asked a similar question about CNPC, and the answer that we've gotten back is, is rather interesting. Uh, remember that this is the world's fourth largest company by revenue. I mean, it's just it's bigger than most countries. So the investments that they're making in places like Chad and Niger, and even in some of the oil exploration blocks off of uh, Angola, are you know it's sofa change for them. It's insignificant to their overall bottom line. When you look at the volume of of oil that they're importing from the Persian Gulf and from the Middle East and from other parts, from here in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's huge. It dwarfs anything that's coming out of Chad and Niger. So what they explained to us was that these are these are testing grounds for them. This is where they're learning. This is where they're going into very, very difficult parts of the world. They're bringing their staff in. They're bringing new equipment in that they're learning. And so at the end of the day, there's not an enormous amount of pressure for them to turn a, a profit because that's not what it's there for. Um, does that make sense? That's some, that's some of the, the, the rationalizations we've heard from others. Yeah, I mean, that's the only conclusion to come to, I think, is that they, they can afford to make they can afford to make these investments and, and they can they have a, a much bigger margin of error in terms of making mistakes. I think the Western companies just wouldn't do. And, and I think that's the reason why they're, they're operating in places like Chad and Niger, where the Western oil companies have decided it's not worth it's not worth it for them. The book is Africa's New Oil, Power, Pipelines, and Future Fortunes. Celeste Hicks is a former BBC correspondent in the region and now a freelance journalist who's covering, obviously, a lot of what's going on in Chad with CNPC and the Chinese, and uh, it's absolutely a fascinating story to follow. Uh, we've done two shows now recently on Niger and now Chad, so obviously this is going to be an area for us to kind of keep an eye out on the future. Celeste, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. If people want to follow what you're doing, uh, are you on social media? I am. I'm at Chad Celeste on Twitter. That's probably the best way to find me. Fantastic. And again, the book, Africa's New Oil, Power Pipelines and Future Fortunes. I assume it's available on, at, at Amazon and all the big online publishing uh, and bookstores. Yeah, it's available on Amazon. You can also do a, a Kindle download, um, and you can also buy it from the publisher's website, which is uh, www.zbooks.com. Excellent. This is a nice compliment to Luke Patey and Dan Large uh, and some of the other experts in North Africa and oil. Uh, also, of course, the Tom Burgess book, uh, The Looting Machine. So there's a number of new books that are coming out. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Cobus, but Luke Patey's book was The Kings of Crude, right? 
That was about the Chinese yes, in South yes. Sudan and Sudan. So there's a number of yes, new books. Luke, Luke also reviewed Celeste's book very, very favorably. Excellent. Yeah. We'll put that. We'll put Luke's review and links to to Celeste's book in our show notes on our page on our webpage at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Hey, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our, on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate this 24-hour stream of China Africa um, news items. So if you sign up, if you like us there, then you get a constant stream of China Africa news in your inbox. Um, and we, I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I also want to give a, a shout out to our new website that we've launched. It's called reporting-focac, F-O-C-A-C.com. That's reporting-focac.com. It's built for the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that's going to be happening in December in Johannesburg. But it's really a primer for all journalists and, and, and scholars and students who are new to the China-Africa story. We debunk myths. We've got great links to Twitter feeds. Uh, we've got infographics, podcasts. There's a whole bunch of information there that's excellent for people who really want to kind of round out their knowledge of China-Africa. We've got a lot of experts from Deborah Braudigan, Barry Saltman, a lot of the people you've heard on this show before. They do some writing for us on the site. Once again, reporting-focac.com. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>